watching and welcome to Rising. We have an excellent show for you today. I think we're matching. You disagreed, but then you saw how we looked on camera yes. and you changed your mind. I feel like my dress reads more purple on camera, so I'm going to give this one to you, Robbie. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what are we talking about? Well, News Nation's Brian Inton joins later. We'll discuss new updates with authorities' investigation into the shocking murder of four University of Idaho students. Plus, Amish uh, Adalja, Dr. Amish Adalja, will break down fact from fiction when it comes to this year's flu season. But first, an update to the Twitter files is out. Here's what we know from new reporting shared just last night. Matt Taibbi says the official responsible for sending him the documents, Twitter's deputy general counsel and former FBI general counsel Jim Baker, was fired after releasing the Twitter files to both Taibbi and journalist Barry Weiss without the knowledge of upper management. So now Elon Musk claims that Baker exited over his, quote, possible role in suppression of information important to the public dialogue. According to reporting from the New York Post, while still working for the FBI, Baker was heavily involved in Russiagate investigations launched by the Justice Department. He even testified at the trial of disgraced Clinton lawyer Michael Sussman. So, okay, so the situation seems to be this guy, Jim Baker, worked for the FBI a while ago. He was hired by Twitter under the previous regime, may have played some role. I mean, we saw already some emails from him in the first batch of the Twitter files uh, where he said that where he was kind of pro the hacked materials explanation or that we should stick to the hacked materials explanation until we know more. So he was defending the decision. It's conceivable that he was even more involved in the decision than those emails suggest. He would be someone with contacts actually in the FBI from having worked there. Honestly, he, more than anything I've seen thus far, raises the possibility of some kind of back channel between law enforcement or national security people to be like, hey, this story does not look good. You should do something about sure. it, which we still haven't actually seen, despite the Twitter files kind yeah. of having come up. I still have questions about that. So, but now the newest wrinkle is, so he works for Twitter, and, and he was reviewing these documents to see what they'd be allowed to l release from a legal standpoint. I think... It might be the case that he was like Vijaya Gad's deputy, she, she being the uh, head of Trust and Save this important. I think maybe he worked from her, so then it fell to him when mm -hmm. she exited the company. Apparently, Elon Musk was not aware that this guy was yeah, still working for the company. This, this is the bit that I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm, I would like to get to. It is being reported as though it is kind of nefarious that, you know, no one could have known. I, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but, you know, that this is this is kind of a a a, a rat that's uh, uh, kind of messed up the process of yeah. this disclosure that's supposed to be this big gut for journalists like Matt Taibbi, who I think are very rightly interested in parsing this information and letting us know what's been going on inside of Twitter. I think that's a good thing. After all of the discourse around the purges from Twitter and Elon Musk discussions about firing so many staff members and cleaning house, it is confusing to me how this kind of known open, he wasn't an undercover agent or something, this known open FBI agent was not just still working at the company, or former FBI employee, was not just working at the company, but was in the position to review the documents that were being put out for the very purpose of transparency. Right. And Elon didn't, wasn't aware. And then when he became aware, they fired this person. Right. Uh, because he was holding up the process in some way. And there was some discussion about whether or not he had over-redacted FBI-related information. I mean, there, there could yeah. be really real implications to this. I mean, it sounds like he's the wolf in grandmother's clothes. And you're like, oh, what 
big ears you have, and like it's pretty obvious. It's, it's pretty. It's who, pretty it's obvious. <laughs> and, and I don't know. It doesn't seem to me that there's a ton of accountability as what big as suppression I read it. reflexes <laughs> you have. Exactly. I mean, the, the people who are sympathetic, as I am, to these disclosures, many of them are framing this as though it's like another level of deception by the people who. Yeah. you know, want, want to have these kind of partisan um, outcomes coming out of uh, this, these social media companies. At what point is there any responsibility for the now CEO of Twitter, who's been in charge now for not insignificant period of time, to have oversight over these things? And if he's still letting this kind of stuff fall through the cracks, at what point do we have to start to acknowledge that some of the mistakes that were made at Twitter before might also have been because of a lack of oversight and negligence just like this? Well, I don't know. I... He, you said he's been in charge for a not insignificant, not insignificant amount of time. And it still has of, only been. Well, I don't know. I mean, he's fired. He's making his way through the employee roster. He's firing tons of you, people. You don't, you don't think the former FBI agent, general counsel, who's reviewing the document, should be pretty high on the list? No, he should be. And I guess it was an oversight not to start with him. No, he should have been the first person to go because he is, based on his resume, I mean, I don't want to condemn him without knowing exactly what went down. Sure. But he looks like one of the more culpable figures in all, or is likely to be one of the more culpable figures in this entire story. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's it, yeah, it's, it was an oversight not to start with him. To, to say the least. <laughs> Tech venture capitalist Mike Solana defended continued interest in the Hunter Biden suppression story, calling it, quote, one of the greatest violations of industry power in the history of tech. Matt Taibbi confirmed that round two of the Twitter files can be expected soon. I don't know. What do you think we're going to see in round two? I don't know. I mean, I talk, I'll talk about this in my radar a little bit later, but it does seem to me that when you have evidence of people from both sides of the aisle trying to curry favor and get things um, adjudicated in their in their favor, it's really a story about access and elitism more than it is necessarily about partisanship. Now, there have been some really big partisan maneuvers, the Hunter Biden laptop chief among them, and I don't think that you can ignore that at all. But my concern is, you know, whether or not people are going to continue to try to weaponize these releases in ways that are continuing this kind of partisan infighting, instead of asking these really, I think, important questions about why it is that important people seem to think that they can call up social media companies and social media managers and basically get their will exercised, regardless of what that will is, political or otherwise. And why do social media moderators feel, oh yeah, well, give them whatever they want? Is it, I mean, it's a combination, it's a mix of several things, some of which are more concerning, than, well, they're all concerning, but I mean, one being just the revolving door between uh, typically... Uh, Democratic administrations, Democratic staff, political offices, and these social media companies. There are Republicans who work from them as well. Actually, they hire Republicans to like keep conservative media uh, from hating them so much. Like they, they'll hire a few staple Republicans to do outreach to conservatives to be like, oh no, no, the company doesn't hate you. I work for the company. Look mm -hmm. at me, and I'm mm -hmm. conservative. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also, because the Republican Party used to have, used to be the party that actually had less interest in regulating in general, including regulating social media, now both parties have, well, at least in, in, in verbiage, have a lot of interest in it, and in practice haven't done very much. Uh, so that's probably not true anymore. But what do you expect but to come up next what, in Twitter Files Part 2? Are you expecting any big disclosures? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, no, I don't know what we're going to see. I would like to see, I would like to know who... What person or what process flagged the story initially as unsafe? Mm. Because we've learned w why and how the hacked materials justification, which was post facto, was 
foisted upon us and then maintained and defended. But I, we, I still don't know or couldn't tell from the existing Twitter files who said this, who makes the initial decision to say this is harmful. Was it a person? Yeah. Was it a process? How did that happen? Yeah. So I would like to know that. And then I would like to know the other piece of the puzzle is, you know, all of the yelling at social media companies to handle more misinformation. You know, it's happening at the same time various government officials are publicly and privately threatening legislation or regulation or punishment. And does that taken together move this into First Amendment violation territory? Mm. Not mm. not just the telling them, please get rid of this, but the, it's the please get rid of this and there could be consequences yeah. for not doing it that you have to fit those. Yeah, a- absolutely. One one other thing I'd like to see is is if some of these emails, some of these files would be made more searchable for the broader public, the way that we that can look nice. through the Podesta emails and stuff. Because we saw a lot of very specific journalists named as having these relationships with the Clinton administration, trying to get friendly stories out there and the way that happens in journalism. But I'd love to see if there were specific accounts mm-hmm. um, particularly in the course of, you know, the 20, 2020 primary and beyond that were signaled out whether there was any kind of suppression and what kind of decisions were being made around um, uh, soft blacklisting people on Twitter, uh, shadow banning them and things like that. Right. So, And you can't complain that mainstream media is not reporting on this the way you'd like them to do it if you're not sharing with them the documents as well. For you sure. Gotta give the doc- you, gotta give the, you can give it to Taibbi and Barry Weiss exclusively first. Sure. But then everybody wants a crack at them. I'd like a crack. Yeah, I'd like a crack at them too, Robbie. All right, we'll see if we get that, and we'll tell you what's on Brianna's radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, as you're all well aware, when Elon Musk announced his intention to buy Twitter earlier this year, one of the principal reasons he cited for doing so were concerns that the platform was biased. Twitter has become an important tool for journalists and politicians, but it seems uh, like content decisions are not being neutrally adjudicated. Rather, in Musk's view, Twitter leadership was advancing a certain partisan agenda. Now, basically, I agree, Twitter moderation is deeply inconsistent, but is Elon Musk actually doing anything about it? Let's take a look at some recent moderation choices made by Musk. Free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, explained Musk, and Twitter is a digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. His plan was to change Twitter's policy and ban only speech that goes far beyond what the law allows. To that end, after purchasing the app, he reinstated a number of previously banned accounts, including a former President Donald Trump, who had been banned after his tweets on January 6th were judged as having incited the attack on the Capitol, and Kanye West, now known as Ye, who had been suspended just this past October for tweeting his plan to go DEFCON 3 against Jewish people. Others, of course, were not so lucky. Alex Jones, who had been suspended in 2018 for violating Twitter's abusive behavior policy, was not readmitted to the app because, according to Musk, lying about the deaths of the children slain at Sandy Hook was a bridge too far. Specifically, Musk evoked the tragic death of his own child, explaining that his personal experience with such a tragedy precluded him from showing Jones the same grace he showed West. However, Ye's amnesty was, of course, short-lived. Although Musk yet let, sorry, let Ye back on the platform after he talked to Ye about his DEFCON tweet and said, quote, I think he took it to heart. Six days ago, Ye posted an image of a swastika intertwined with a Star of David, which Musk says violated the company's policy against incitement to violence. Thus, Ye is banned again, and many of Musk's supporters are asking, 
Should he have been? Libertarian comic Dave Smith put it this way. Kanye said a bunch of effed up and stupid things. He still shouldn't have his Twitter account banned. This is either a free speech platform or it's not. Elon Musk claiming it incited violence is absurd. At least be honest, you don't like his views, so you banned him. Hmm. Podcaster Jason Whitlock argued that Kanye's suspension was an act of compassion, not suppression of speech, saying that Kanye needs to unplug and Musk did it for him. But that argument quite transparently doesn't gel with Musk's stated speech principles or the terms and conditions of the site. I read the policy and free speech as long as you aren't cringe simply isn't in there. Part of the problem is that so much of the conversation around speech issues at Twitter are abstract, relying on presumptions that people who say they're free speech absolutists are actually more tolerant of all types of speech, regardless of whether that speech is personally offensive. But in evoking personal tragedy and banning Alex Jones, Musk admitted that a more subjective standard is in fact at play. Musk said he was bringing comedy back to Twitter, but quickly blocked and suspended people that made Elon Musk parody accounts. Is Musk fairly adjudicating claims, or is he simply making the site in his image? Now, as many have pointed out, First Amendment law has repeatedly struck down laws that would restrict offensive speech including swastikas, as it famously did in Skokie v. National Socialist Party of America. If Musk were really allowing all speech except for that speech that goes well beyond what's legal, as he initially said, wouldn't Kanye's post be allowed? Now, of course, social media platforms like Twitter are certainly allowed to constrain the language permitted on the site, as Musk is now realizing the advertisers that are the source of most of the profit on the site require us certain level of decorum. They don't want their ads for squatty potties and Disney movies to run alongside hate symbols and invectives against religious minorities. But it is interesting that despite claims of being a free speech absolutist, Musk's standards are much more illiberal than those allowed on a sidewalk in Skokie, Illinois. In fact, some have pointed out that even based on the narrower rules promulgated by Twitter, designed to make the app friendly for casual users and advertisers alike, Musk is still being overly strict. Twitter's rules do prohibit threatening violence against an individual or group of people. The rules also prohibit the glorification of violence. You may not engage in targeted harassment of someone or incite other people to do so. You may not promote violence against, threaten, or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, caste, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. You are also prohibited from using Twitter services to artificially amplify or suppress information or deceptively share synthetic or manipulated media likely to cause harm. Okay, so let's test whether under Musk these standards are being enforced. For one, it's not clear that as personally repugnant as I find Kanye's hybrid swastika Star of David symbol, that it violates Twitter's rules. Whether naively or as a troll, Kanye posted the symbol describing it as a representation of unity rather than hate. It's hard to argue that it made sense to invite Kanye back to Twitter after saying he intended to go DEFCON 3 for Jewish, pe Jewish people. That was okay. But eject him after posting the swastika star of David image with the text, yay 24, love everyone, hashtag love speech. 
Are we to believe that the first tweet was like not really an incitement to violence and thus it made sense to let him back on the app, but the second love everyone tweet was? Again, I'm not the one who set high goals uh, for free speech absolutism here on Twitter. Musk is. Is this what a consistent, rational approach to doing this looks like? Is there really a rule prohibiting hate symbols, or is Musk reacting to the embarrassment of having recently readmitted Kanye West immediately, and only to have him immediately post swastikas, leak private texts with Musk, and post, well, less than flattering pictures of Musk at the beach? Moreover, a quick search of the site reveals that there's not an enforced prohibition against posting swastikas or any other hate symbol. You can find them all over the place in various contexts, including informational or educational ones. There's certainly been no culling of Confederate flags, burning crosses, or other symbols of racial terrorism. And as many people on the left have pointed out, targeted harassment seems to be perfectly acceptable, as long as the person being harassed doesn't have an in with the establishment figures who get a special hearing at Twitter HQ. As revealed in the Twitter files, Establishment figures on both sides of the aisle had the privilege of requesting favors that the rest of us have to do without. That's a real problem. Elites shouldn't get special treatment on the app. But that seems like a top-down problem, not necessarily a left-right one. Ultimately, people across the political spectrum feel wronged on the Bird app. We obviously have talked about the Hunter Biden laptop suppression, and I believe that was a hugely dumb move by Twitter and an explicitly political one. But also, Boston Children's Hospital has received multiple bomb threats after the now infamous libs of TikTok account posted content titled, Boston Children's Hospital supports castrating kids and I have evidence. Regardless of whether or not you think they should have the right to post said content, isn't there at least as credible an argument that the subsequent bomb threats amount to an incitement to violence as Kanye's tweets? Does it make sense for Kanye's post to come down while libs of TikTok was reinstated? I don't know. After my disagreement with nuclear nonproliferation advocate Joe Serencioni about a month ago over that CPC letter advocating peace in Ukraine, how, how dare it, <laughs> I was targeted by NAPO, a group founded by a Holocaust denier that photoshopped images of my face on top of dead Ukrainians superimposed with words I've never said. Does that violate Twitter guidelines against deceptively sharing synthetic or manipulated media likely to cause harm? One person even paid for a bomb to be sent to Ukraine on which was written, Brianna Joy Gray is a vile B-I-T-C-H. <laughs> Does this violate uh, Twitter guidelines? Now, I have no interest in signaling myself out here as a victim. Many people have felt, of course, that Twitter rules were unevenly enforced. And I, I'm a big girl. Whom amongst us have, hasn't had her name written on a bomb and sent to a war zone? <laughs> the point is that there is a bigger problem here than the one identified by Musk before he bought this app, and it's not clear to me that he's really doing anything about it. Over and over again, elites seem to be making it clear. It's not hate speech that's the problem. It's hate speech that embarrasses me or loses me appetizers or offends the memory of, of my child. It's not election interference that's the problem. It's election interference that hurts my candidate. Musk proposed creating a content moderation council to help make these decisions, and I hope that he does. But will it be staffed by more insiders? Will it simply formalize the process that's happening now, whereby high-profile accounts, like Andy knows I talked about this in an earlier radar, can simply request that users be banned and get their wish? Or Musk finally start to articulate consistent principles that lead to fairness and, yes, real freedom? 
Only time will tell, but I gotta say, we aren't off to an especially auspicious start here. Yeah, mm. I saw some of the commentary on this Kanye stuff, and it's a difficult thing to talk about because I don't think anybody supports the substance or tone of what Kanye is up to, but it is hard to parse out why it is that these decisions are being made, and every single time a new one comes down the pike, the rubric that is getting used only becomes that much more obscure. Right. I don't think anyone could credibly argue that Kanye posting the swastika is actually an incitement to violence, more so than the examples you've pointed out, incitement to violence being a very well-litigated term that would not apply to just showing a swastika picture, because you can do that on Twitter and other contexts. You could certainly do that in the public square and not face, not be arrested for it, because it's an ironclad First Amendment kind of thing. Yeah, look— the gap between what Elon has promised to do and what he's actually doing, it, I think, exists, and it's fair It's fair to point it out. Um, I do think it's rich not for you, but for other people who claim about, like, or who complain about the level of access an Andy No-type person now has to the content moderators. Well, that's the level of access that your kind of mainstream or progressive media people had with the old Twitter regime, and I think it was weaponized against um, provocative people, contrarian people, time and time and time again. Now it's being weaponized against more main. Now that, that now that tool is in the hands of the enemy from their standpoint, and they're really I upset mean, about it. That is true, and there are some really big, significant examples like the Hunter Biden instance that cannot be ignored. Mm -hmm. But it is also true that part of the revelation of the Twitter files is that the Trump. Trump campaign reached out to have things taken down in the same way that the Biden campaign did. So does too. everybody. So, I mean, it's not as though it was being weaponized by the left and now it's being weaponized by the right. It was weaponized by elites of both parties before. And I suspect there's still a lot of elite glad handing going on right now. If you happen to have access to Elon Musk, if you happen to have his phone number or he follows you and you can DM him and get people to take stuff down, I still think that that's a privilege that's available to you that's not available to everyone else. And although I do think that he's planning to set up some of these mm -hmm. moderation panels, people should be asking a lot of hard questions about who is going to be on those panels. Isn't it going to be the same kind of people that think we have to protect what Elon Musk's interests are? And some of those interests, I think, are perfectly legitimate. It's legitimate for him to have personal feelings about having gone through a tragedy with his child and not wanting Alex, Musk back on, sorry, Alex Jones back on. But you cannot pretend that that is anything other than your personal pecking Dillo's driving policy. You know, he might um, actually take a page out of Facebook's book, something I would mm -hmm. never say in any other context, but Facebook has this Supreme Court of Facebook, this content review board of First Amendment scholars, uh, international uh, free speech people, so some domestic First Amendment scholars, some international human rights people um, who get together and uh, will review. Now they can only review a tiny Right. portion of the cases that Facebook has adjudicated. But in most cases, they have uh, they have disagreed. They have uh, countermanded a Facebook decision to take down a piece of content and said, no, this ought to be up on free speech grounds. Maybe doing something like that. Twitter used to have that trust and safety council that really acted as a kind of progressive censorship wing. Mm -hmm. But a, a board staffed by actual people who have affinity and affection for real principles of free speech, even for allowing controversial content, um, might might benefit and would certainly be a better solution than Elon Musk himself yeah. handling all yeah, of these issues. Like, this stuff is hard. That's it my only hard. point. I, I don't mean, it's, I'm not like judging Elon Musk in particular, although that he has, he has set himself out to be judged by setting such high standards mm -hmm. and being so critical of the job other people are doing. But it's legitimately hard. And part of the reason that we've had so many screw-ups in the past 
is political, but part of it is because folks are really struggling to figure this out. And I, I worry do I do worry sometimes that some of the energy is spent kind of like witch hunting you know, for people's agenda, as opposed to doing the hard work of digging into the constitutional cases and figuring it out. It's also really ugly. Yeah. So to the extent that we've been having this conversation about Balenciaga and the, the child porn case being on the background of the desk setup and, and what that means, you know, there was a reason that so many First Amendment cases deal with things like child porn and swastikas and Nazis and all of the ugly stuff, because it's on the ugly margins that the, you know, the case law that applies to the rest of us is made. So mm. we're going to have to dig into the merits of something like Kanye's breakdown tweets if we're going to want to, if we're going to have principles that extend to every scenario that comes yeah. up in a fair way. Yeah. You can't always just leave it up and let people themselves choose if they want to see it too. That's always an option. Yeah. Nobody's required you, to look you, at you Kanye's tweets. You can mute him, you can block him, you can do yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. We'll have more rising right after this. Georgia voters elected incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock for Senate in the Peach State's runoff election last night, marking another loss for pro-Donald Trump candidates in the 2022 midterm elections and solidifying Democrats' hold on the upper chamber of Congress. Warnock received 51.4 percent of the vote, while GOP challenger Herschel Walker garnered 48.7 percent. That's with 98 percent of the votes counted at the time of this taping. Here's Herschel Walker conceding. So I want to say I'm never going to stop fighting for Georgia. I'm never going to stop fighting for you because you're my family. Because I always, oh, I'm a, I'm a winner. We all winners. So we're all winners. And that's what I want to say. We're all winners. And I want to say God is a good God. God bless you guys. And let me just tell you, stay together. Continue to believe in our elected official. Always, always cast your vote no matter whatever is happening. Cast your vote. For all now, and God we trust. Commentators on both sides of the aisle reacted to the runoff results. Let's watch. Was on the part of the Democrats. I felt it, you felt it, but we don't change anything. We have the same people in place in leadership, same people in place apparently at the RNC. That's not, perhaps that's not changing. We just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I I'm pissed tonight, frankly. The reality is, Raphael Warnock already won this seat. The fact that he had to win it twice is a result of Georgia still retaining some aspects of Jim Crow, which they doubled down on yes. with this new voter law that produced long lines that didn't have to happen, a shortened um, period in order to do this instead of nine weeks, only had four weeks. They cut off the last weekend. Voting ended on Friday of last week. They didn't get that second weekend. They killed souls to the polls right before the election. Republicans in the state of Georgia have done everything. And Brian Kemp, you know, he, he may look good because of what he did with Donald Trump and resisting him. But Brian Kemp is one of the authors of the modern day Jim Crow residue that has created because Republicans want to guarantee themselves these statewide elections. In this case, they were defied by a very multiracial coalition yeah. of voters. Maybe you can explain to me, Brianna, how a runoff election <laughs> is an aspect of Jim Crow. I, I, I'm open to it. I, I don't know what the argument Look, for that is, but Joanne Reed seems more upset with her candidate winning than Laura Ingram <laughs> did with her candidate losing. I, I'm a little confused about that. Look, of course, there is and has been, you know, various voter suppression efforts all over the country. Both political parties try to make votes swing in their direction through redistricting, through shutting down poll locations and parts of the, the, the district 
you know, that aren't populated by people who they think they're going to vote for them and all these kinds of shenanigans. But what we saw in Georgia and we saw with Stacey Abrams is that all of the lawsuits that she really used to make a name for herself in the state and which she's been, you know, which, which were about voter suppression, which has been the reason that she has pointed to for her now two losses here in her shot of the governorship, went nowhere. They were all unsuccessful. We talked to um, a reporter who had really done some great investigation into whether or not the money was kind of ill-spent on a law firm that she overpaid for that happened to be run by a former, uh, I think, campaign um, worker of hers, campaign manager of hers, and also close friend of hers from law school. I mean, there's a lot of messy stuff going on there with Stacey Abrams that has really kind of undermined the credibility of some of the claims that the voter suppression was the but-for cause for her law and for other losses in the state. At the end of the day, Raphael Warnock was a good candidate. Mm-hmm. He's a good can- We talk a lot about how Horsher Walker was a bad candidate. Raphael Warnock was a good candidate. He's a, a minister at Martin Luther King's old church. He has been very respectful in his criticisms of Herschel Walker, respectful of his legacy as a football player, uh, understanding that many people in the state really admire the man for reasons outside of politics. He talked about the issues. He ran a good campaign. And I think it's time for Democrats to really think about recreating that because what you can't really what you can't really um, change in the same way that you can uh, you know uh, have good outcomes with candidate choice is the fact of parties trying to wrangle outcomes people redistricting racism existing you know I, I saw a friend of mine from Georgia uh, who's a, a public defender and a, and, a, and a journalist was saying you know this would have happened in any state don't try to act like Georgians are more backward or more racist than anyone else People vote along partisan lines. That's what happened here. And don't try to overmake the case that this was really fundamentally about racism. Yeah. Also, Warnock won. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't forget that Warnock actually won here. I agree with all of that. On the uh, on the Laura Ingram conservative reaction side, um, I understand the frustration. Uh, they, they should feel frustrated because they were expected to do very well this uh, midterm, the red wave, et cetera, did not happen. Stunning disappointments everywhere outside of Florida, virtually everywhere. But there she bl- it's interesting to hear her blame the RNC or saying there should be new leadership at the RNC, mm-hmm. uh, something I'm hearing from a lot of conservatives right now. Uh, Ronna McDaniel is the, is the chairwoman, and she is running again to be the chairwoman. And there's a lot of people in conservative media who wants her to be, they want someone else. I've heard Lee Zeldin's name floated, mm-hmm. the New York Republican uh, who, came, who did pretty well but didn't win. Uh, and, and some others. Uh, Harmeet Dillon is a uh, Republican attorney who's entered the race. So there's, anyway, there's a lot of frustration with leadership, with McConnell, with McCarthy, with all those people. That, but it doesn't seem to me, and, and maybe those people are doing, making really bad, foolish decisions politically, strategically for the Republican Party. But those people did not want Herschel Walker to be the candidate. Those people did not want Dr. Oz to be the candidate. It's saying it's Trump's fault and Trump's well, fault alone. I, I, and people go, well, oh, you're just so anti-Trump or something. But it seems just transparently obvious to me mm. that Trump, the, the problem is the strategic issue. Maybe you like Trump because you like his policies and you well, like these policies, but he put forth candidates who are not good. But did Trump really just bust in the door like the Kool-Aid man and say it's going to yeah. be Herschel Walker yes, or bust? There weren't other candidates. You know, sometimes there's a shallow candidate field and everyone ends up kind of just coalescing Jeff behind Sessions, somebody. The, the senator tried to, and I don't agree with his politics whatsoever, but he tried to reclaim his old seat. I think and he would have done better than Herschel Walker. You think he would have done better than Herschel Walker? Yeah. Because at the end yeah, of the day, it's, he would it's, have. A, it's hard to beat an incumbent. And rock people. it was the yeah. same thing with Brian Kemp. But Jeff Sessions would have, was not currently the incumbent, but had been in office for a long time. Sure, sure. 
Yeah. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania, they absolutely had a stronger candidate uh, that uh, the Dr. Oz prevailed over. Um, sure. I, I keep going back to Arizona, where where the the, the, pre, the governor who, who's no longer the governor who's termed out, Doug Ducey, yeah. who was interested in running for that Senate seat, but knew because of of refusing to buy into Trumpism on election denialism, he was going to get killed in a primary yeah. versus Blake Masters, who made his whole campaign about how Trump actually won the election. Well, he. Yeah. He he would have won. He probably would have won. I mean, it was a close election. He had just been he had been reelected governor by like 14 points or something. Yeah. Well, speaking of candidate choice, writers Ed Jelani tweeted Brian Kemp and Reverend Warnock made their campaigns about their records, often talking about jobs for middle and working class Georgians. Stacey Abrams and Herschel Walker ran much more partisan campaigns. Georgia's a pragmatic state, slowly entering purple status. Easy races to call. I think that's a I think that's a fair analysis. It's so much of what we talk about is about these superficial aspects of people's pitches and oftentimes it is the it is the candidates that talk more about kitchen table issues that are more grounded in what their constituents actually want to hear about that end up sticking the landing not just because those you know popular issues are popular, but because they don't end up getting caught up in the media fray around some of the scandals that Stacey Abrams had to contend with, saying the wrong thing, being painted as anti-American or anti-Georgia because of some remarks that she made at a campaign trail. Reverend Warnock, as a pastor, as someone from the state who has deep ties in the community, I think was just really able to navigate those waters better. Yeah, I, I think he did. I think he did. Clearly did that. Um, yeah, and Herschel Walker, I hear he has a nice vacation home in Georgia <laughs> that he visits from time to time, but now he can go back to where he really lives. Yeah, I don't think he has much of a future in Republican <laughs> politics, but, uh, you know, people on both sides sometimes like to elevate their losers to permanent <laughs> hero status. Stacey Abrams obviously got a lot of that. I think yeah. her time in the spotlight should also come to a come to a close. But uh, From your lips to the DNC's ears, we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising for you after this. According to Bloomberg, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain says President Biden is expected to announce his re-election campaign after the holidays. This comes as Biden's push to make South Carolina the first in the nation Democratic presidential primary has stirred up old tensions between his and Senator Bernie Sanders' camp. In 2020, Biden lost the first two primaries in Iowa, New Hampshire, then he also lost Nevada, but won decidedly in South Carolina, solidifying his presidential primary success. Mm -hmm. Former Sanders campaign manager Fashion Kier criticized the choice to nominate South Carolina in a New York Times op-ed due to the state's anti-union stance and the fact that it is decidedly not a battleground state, causing DNC chair Jamie Harrison to accuse the Sanders alum of dismissing the importance of black voters in the primary familiar tune. But as Jacobin writer Bronco Marchetich noted in 2020, South Carolina ranked dead last in terms of how much its demographics had changed, growing older and whiter, in fact. Georgia has a higher proportion of African-Americans, while Nevada is far closer than both states to mirroring the actual demographic makeup of the country as a whole. Critics of the South Carolina push have gone so far as to call the move undemocratic and an obvious ploy to lock in Biden's renomination bid. Mm. Yeah, so it's worth noting, Biden didn't just lose those first three states. He did disastrously in them. I think coming in fifth place in some of them, um, I don't think higher than third place in any of those states. Nevada, which very notably has a very high Latino population and is more reflective of the population of the, the nation as a whole. Bernie Sanders 
one in a way that caused the entire country to melt down. That's when we had all of these news commentators on MSNBC talking about how there were going to be executions in Central Park and brown shirts marching in the street. And we have to stop Bernie Sanders. People were very openly concerned about what this meant. And so to act like this isn't a kind mm -hmm. of partisanship that's happening here and that race isn't being used as a cover to excuse what Joe Biden is doing here. This is about him having long ties with the establishment in the state of South Carolina, a conservative state, a very poor state that, frankly, Democrats haven't done very much to support um, ever. Uh, and people like Jim Clyburn, who has a lot of power in the state and close ties to Joe Biden, being able to basically swing the election and lock it up for Joe Biden. That's what this is about. This isn't about trying to get, you know, more black voters heard. We've seen exactly how little Joe Biden cares about the interests of black voters over the course of the last two years when he has fulfilled zero of the promises that he's made to them from the canceling student debt of people who went to HBCUs to passing a George uh, Floyd Justice and uh, Policing Act. None of it has happened. And, and this, this is, this is, this is, this does seem to be little more than an effort for Joe Biden to box out any primary challenges. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's likely to face a very serious primary challenge, but you're right that this would benefit him. But what is the—you educate me. I really—I don't—you know so much more about this specific subject than I do. How would this uh, play to a Kamala Harris coronation <laughs> in 2028? Is this designed to ultimately help her? Well, I think there is an expectation that— Whatever Jim Clyburn says, people in the state will do. And there is some truth to that. I forget the exact number now, but I, I believe it was a significant majority, maybe 60 percent of voters said that Jim Clyburn's endorsement basically dictated how they were going to vote in the Democratic primary. So to that end, it could be the case that if he says Kamala is the one, that people will fall in line and Kamala will be the one. It is worth noting, though, however, that in a general election context, context, this is not a competitive state for Democrats. The fact of a Democrat being popular or being able to win in South Carolina means absolutely nothing for their ability to actually win the country as a whole and is a kind of waste of energy in a lot of ways. I think it makes a lot more sense to focus on a purple state like Georgia or like Nevada to try to see if the person that you've picked actually is going to be able to stick the distance. Yeah. And what we know about Kamala Harris is that she was someone who was did so poorly in these races and was so unpopular that she had to drop out of the primary before her home state because Andrew Yang, of all people, someone who had zero name recognition a year before the primary or going into the primary, was beating her in the polls in California. Yeah, if we wanted to have primaries in states where they matter for the national stakes and you want to choose candidates based on how they resonate in the states you need to win, yeah, then we're looking at Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, the, the exact, Ohio. Yeah, the exact ones that were in the mix for some of these Senate races in this, uh, in this midterm. So I do think I understand uh, not wanting Iowa in particular and New Hampshire, I guess, to, to a lesser extent. Because but of still, the caucus reasons? Yeah, I mean, it was, that was so dysfunctional. I remember the not knowing who won. It, it looked it looked utterly ridiculous. Sure. Uh, the optics of it, um, and, and also it's a very it's a very bizarre process. Um, it's it's not one that uh, I think makes a lot of sense to the casual voter or casual participant sure. in democracy. Sure. Uh, Iowa's had a lock on it for forever. Um, not a representative state on any front. And uh, and uh, and yes, it incompetently performed. So I understand not wanting to removing it from some other state. I think that's fine. I, I think that that's a decision you can come to without having any really partisan agenda for it. Uh, Republicans should do the same. But uh, but yeah, I, I take your point about the Sarah, the South Carolina pivot is just such a. 
pro-Biden and theoretically pro Kamala Harris. Right. Move. Well, one other thing that is worth noticing, noting about Iowa is that I think the concerns about the lack of diversity, et cetera, are valid, and the fact that the caucus process does benefit certain kind of candidates and not others. But having a smaller state where you can do more retail politics, where there is a bigger effect of just investing money, door knocking, talking to people, and getting your your name out there, it it does benefit smaller names, people with less money, and the kind of people that I think we do want to be running for office mm -hmm. more. If you had to take on a behemoth like California or New York, or even a, a, a sure. significantly larger state like South Carolina, it's very, very difficult to gain any entry there if you're not already someone with billions of dollars who's backed by the political machine. And that is something that a, a struggle that Bernie Sanders faced. He also has to take some responsibility for not doing more grass work, work in that state for a longer period of time and doing more of the political gl uh, gl glad handing that is required to make inroads in the community in that state and a lot of southern states in particular. So that's on Bernie Sanders and he has to own that and those kinds of choices. But other kinds of um, insurgent candidates are also going to face those challenges. And as we're discussing who should vote first, we should keep in mind that there are going to be a kind of establishment versus anti-establishment concerns here that we definitely should be paying attention to. Mm. Very interesting. Well, thank you for shedding some light on that for all of us. We'll have more Rising right after this. On Monday, the Center for Disease Control encouraged people to start wearing masks again in order to slow the spread of the season's main respiratory illnesses, COVID, flu, and RSV. This year's flu season is off the charts, already having broken records for the number of positive tests reported in a single week during any flu season on record since 1997. The trajectory of this year is similar to the relatively bad season of 2019-2020, which immediately preceded the COVID pandemic. Joining us now to discuss is senior scholar at John Hopkins Center for Health Security, Health Security Dr. Amish Adalja. Welcome, doctor. Thanks for having me. So why is the flu so bad this season? I, I remember, you know, conversations about COVID outcompeting the flu and us really not having a very bad uh, flu year during the pandemic, I, I suspect, because our the mitigation efforts that we were taking that didn't, you know, that couldn't quite kill COVID were actually effective enough against um, the flu. So are we, are we seeing a rebound because we're not, you know, staying at home so much, we're eating out, we're going to work, et cetera? That's definitely part of it. As people socially interact back at their normal rate pre-pandemic, all of those respiratory viruses that were having difficulty spreading during uh, the time when people were wearing masks, when people were social distanced, when people were eating outdoors, for example, those are coming back. And in the interim, we've had a couple of seasons where people haven't been infected with flu. So some of that immunity that you get just from being exposed to it, that's a little bit lower. And we also have lower than expected vaccination rates against influenza. So it's kind of all of those things combined are causing this rise in flu and also uh, some of the explanation behind the rise in RSV as well. I have seen some discussion about whether or not uh COVID, longer-term effects of having had COVID, potential immune effects are also part of what's making more people more vulnerable to other um, kinds of diseases and, and the flu. Is that a part of the picture or no? No, there's no evidence that COVID-19 alters your immunity or that, that the vaccine or anything to do with COVID-19 from a biological standpoint has anything to do with this. We all expected that we would see a rise in respiratory infections once people started to socially interact, and it could be worse than usual seasons, seasons because many people who would have gotten 
infected over a short period uh, are getting infected over a short period of time that probably would have been spread out. That's certainly the case for RSV, but there's no evidence that our immune systems are somehow damaged by COVID. It's just that we've had three years of less exposure, so more susceptibility in the population, and we have lower flu vaccination rates this season than prior. On Monday, Pfizer and its partner BioNTech announced they submitted an application to the FDA for authorization of the Omicron-adapted COVID booster for children ages six months to four years. It is currently authorized for ages five years and older in the U.S. and the EU. Now, there has been—some people are more skeptical that kids of that age uh, necessarily need the vaccine, given how they they don't have nearly as bad outcomes from COVID as older populations. Uh, you know, where is, is your thinking in, in terms of uh, vaccination for this younger group? Well, I think that everybody should be vaccinated against COVID-19, but I have a separate position when it comes to who should be boosted. And I've always been somebody who's advocated boosters be targeted to high-risk individuals, those that are above the age of 60, 65, those with any high-risk conditions, irrespective of their age. So in this youngest age group, I think obviously there's going to be some children that are high-risk. They're children with cancer, children who have mm-hmm. immune deficiencies, children that uh, have asthma. Those children are going to benefit from that that bivalent booster. I think for the average healthy child or the average healthy adult, I think that boosters really only provide marginal benefit. I think we really needed to target boosters to high-risk individuals. Those are the people who constitute the 300 to 400 people that die every day. Those people are under-boosted, and I think diluting the message of boosting everybody really uh, takes away from the fact that we really need to focus on high-risk individuals who continue to be hospitalized with COVID. Hmm. When I spoke to uh, Dr. Vinay Prasad a couple of months ago, you know, we were talking about the booster regime, you know, um, cycle that people maybe should or should not be on. And he was saying that, you know, we don't know yet how long the effects of the initial vaccine are going to last. But as long as they are lasting and until we see a spike in hospitalization rates and deaths, then it doesn't seem to me his argument was that it wasn't as crucial um, to emphasize boosters, similar to it sounds like to what you're saying. It does seem, though, that we are experiencing some higher rates of hospitalization at the current moment. And I wonder what you make of how the public should start to make an assessment about when the general population should expect the efficacy of the initial vaccine dose to wear off and when there should be a more broad public conversation about when non-vulnerable people, non-especially vulnerable people anyway, should go ahead and get boosters. Well, right now, there is a universal booster recommendation that's been in place for some time. But I don't think that you're going to see in the healthy population erosion of protection against what matters, severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Because if you think about, for example, uh, somebody like me, 47 years old with no medical problems, my risk for hospitalization from COVID is very, very low. A booster is not going to really appreciably lower that. So what you have to really key the, the use of boosters is on erosion of protection against severe disease. And that's why I recommend boosting high-risk individuals, irrespective of their age, and boosting elderly individuals, because we know that's where we've seen some wearing off of this vaccine. I don't think you're going to see wearing off of this vaccine uh, in healthy populations in terms of severe disease, because the risk is already very, very low for severe disease and those without medical problems. And many people have gotten boosted naturally with hybrid immunity because they've gotten infected. So there's a lot more immunity mm. in that in that healthy population that's intact against severe disease that I don't think necessarily will change. 
You know, that's not a message I feel like I'm hearing from uh, U.S. health officials or health spokespeople in the government as much. I, 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 what I hear is a lot of stressing of, of getting boosted regardless. I, I don't hear so much, I don't think, and it, a more targeted approach. If you're elderly, that's when it's really important, or if you're immunocompromised or you have some health condition, uh, like what you said. Um, are our, do you think the, the you know, the, the, the marketing, the comms people, the people in advocacy in the federal government are narrowly tailoring the message enough, and, and would it be beneficial if they did? I definitely think it will be beneficial. You're starting to see sort of a pivot now where they're tweeting or talking about high-risk individuals, elderly individuals, senior citizens, nursing homes being boosted, because that's actually what's going to change the trajectory of COVID-19. If you boost every 30-year-old in this country, if you get 100%, that's not going to change anything. It's really about getting that 300 to 400 people who are dying every day down. And how do we do that? We make sure that they're fully boosted. We make sure that they have access to Paxlovid. Really focusing boosters and medical countermeasures on the high risk is how we move forward in this. So I do think that they kind of opted for this universal message, which I think is very diluted. And you have the 80-year-old thinking he should get boosted with just the same uh, energy as an 18-year-old. And that's not actually true. Uh, because we know one is at risk for severe disease, one is not. And I think this was a, a mistake uh, with the administration. And there was pushback. We saw FDA advisors resign over the, the booster uh, booster uh, decisions. We saw the, the CDC director override the ACIP for the second time ever in history because the ACIP wanted a more targeted booster campaign. But the administration wanted a universal booster vaccine. And I think that's uh, that's where we are. And I just I want to really drive that point home. So you're saying that you know, the, the deaths we're seeing from COVID, the few hundred deaths every day, that is predominantly, by and large, in an in a elderly or immunocompromised or probably there's probably some morbid obesity or cancers or th those kinds of people. That's who are we're, who are still dying from COVID. Exactly. The, the deaths have shifted to the older age group, and that older age group is the one that needs to be maximally boosted. They need to have early access to Paxlovid. That's where we really need to work if we're going to, to get the death rate down even lower than it is now. And per the CDC's new recommendations to start masking, not just for COVID, but for these other, uh, for the flu and other respiratory diseases, uh, you know, what do you make of that recommendation? Obviously, it's become, masking itself has become politicized in the wake of COVID. Other parts of the world employ regular masking for sickness all the time without those same kind of political implications. Is that something that you would also recommend? I think if you're somebody that's high risk, you should be thinking about wearing masks when you're in crowded, congregated places that are indoors. That's always been a recommendation that we gave to the immunocompromised during respiratory viruses. And I think those types of recommendations make sense. Uh, a lot of these viruses are unavoidable. And for many people, they may be mild illnesses. But for high risk individuals, I do think that masks uh, can be useful. And I'm glad that the CDC issuing a recommendation rather than seeing the return of mandates, which kind of get mired all into the politics of this pandemic and end up going nowhere. Mm. Well, Dr. Adalja, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. More Rising right after this. Idaho police are still looking for information on the grisly murders of four Idaho college students last month. But according to new reporting, they have recently zeroed in on the movements of two of the victims, Zaina Kernodal and Ethan Chapman, who were allegedly at a fraternity house in the hours before they were killed. Mm, joining us now to discuss the latest in the case is senior national correspondent for News Nation, Brian Inton. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
Can you start maybe by just updating uh, viewers as to what happened and then tell us what the latest is? Because the last time we talked about this case, there were basically absolutely no leads about who might have committed these grisly murders. Yeah, so it was a little more than three weeks ago now uh, here in Moscow, Idaho, where I am. University of Idaho is here. Uh, there were four college students uh, in their off-campus house who were murdered um, in the middle of the night. A really, really brutal killing. All four uh, of the students were stabbed to death. Um, and what's so disturbing is now more than three weeks later, police are releasing very little information. Uh, there have been no arrests. Uh, and as of the last update yesterday from uh, police here in Moscow, they still have no suspects um, and no persons of interest. So the families um, are, are really obviously heartbroken, but also frustrated at this point uh, that no one is in custody and that there's apparently no suspect, at least not that they're telling the public. And then you've got the small college town um, where students are now back and people are just really, really on edge. Students are extremely nervous being here right now. Uh, knowing that the killer is still on the run. Yeah, I, I think it's important for viewers to understand how unusual and unprecedented it would be it is in the modern era to have such a shocking, uh, several people killed you know, in, an, in a college town where there's surveillance cameras everywhere and there's a police presence and everybody knows each other and to have absolutely n not even the first clue how this could have happened three weeks later is very, very weird, and I, I totally understand why people on campus would be nervous. I, I don't think I would go back to the campus at this point because you don't know if there's a serial killer. You don't know what is going on. Um, do, are there any updates about the uh, sort of the security at the the, the where they were killed? Uh, I saw some reporting that maybe a one of the fathers of one of the uh, one of the girls, one of the murdered one of the victims had repaired a, a door lock. The ex so the expectation being that the house was quite secure. Yeah, one of the victims, Anna, we, we reported after talking to, um, to her mom that just a week prior to the murders, her dad had been at the house repairing the lock on her bedroom door. It's an interesting house. It's a three-story house. Um, there are six uh, bedrooms. And it's known to be a party house. Um, everyone on the street says there were parties there every weekend. There's a coded lock to get into the house. Um, and then there are also locks on the individual doors. And we're told that in the past sometimes, which isn't uncommon with students and student like off-campus housing, you could get a lease per room, like not one lease for the whole right. house. So, so these kids had locks on their individual doors. And then there was a coded lock to get into the house. Um, and we're told that, like, Friday and Saturday nights, most of the time, uh, there were parties at the house. And now there were, so there were two other people in the house. They were not, uh, they were not attacked. They survived. They, 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 they weren't aware that this had happened until the next morning, and they were the ones that called the police. And they have not been, they have been ruled out as suspects, or they've not been looked at. Um, at all, uh, I understand. And then of the of the four victims, so two of them uh, were they in two pairs of rooms? They weren't all in a different room, right? It was there were two of them were in the same room: the, the the girlfriend and the boyfriend. And then the other two were also in the same room. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah. So again, three story house. Um, the victims were found on the second and third floor. On the second floor, um, Zana and Ethan were found, the, the girlfriend and boyfriend. And up on the third floor, mm -hmm. uh, Kaylee and her best friend, Maddie, were found in a room. And we've, we've reported um, that, uh, that Kaylee's injuries 
were significantly more brutal than her best friend Maddie and they were in the same bedroom together, which is just kind of possibly another piece of this puzzle when you talk about like who the target may have been. Um, if her injuries were more severe, was she the target or did she possibly wake up and try to defend her friend? Um, like one of the big questions is really like how the murderer moved throughout the house, why the murderer chose to go to the third floor because there was no way to, to easily get out of the third floor. You know, it was way up. You couldn't just like walk out a door or anything. So clearly he had a, a motivation for going up there. Um, so, so you mentioned it. I mean, there's just still so many unknowns more than more than three weeks later. And just the fact that police haven't come up with a motive. I mean, they're saying it, it was targeted, but no one really understands what that word means. They're not giving, um, so, and, but they say they don't really have any evidence to say who was targeted. So you've got a lot of people in the community saying like, well, wait a minute, you're saying targeted, but like, how can we be sure this wasn't just a random killing? Right. And, and there was, uh, is there a gap in time as well? I, my, my understanding of the reporting is like the, the whereabouts of, or at least of, uh, of Chapman and Zayna, they were at another party. I think they, they were last seen like nine o'clock or something. And then this is taking place in the very early morning hours. So there's some couple hours where it's not quite clear where they were. And not that that necessarily means anything, but is that the, the state of, of that, the timeline? Yeah, so there's this big hole in the timeline, which is which is one of the big questions you mentioned with with um, Zana and Ethan. We know that they went to this fraternity party at the Sigma Chi fraternity house, which is very very close to the house where the murders happened. It's like maybe half a block away, and they were spotted there at 9 p.m. the night before the murders. Um, and we know, according to police, that they got back to the house where where they were murdered, their house. Um, at 1.45 in the morning. But that gap between 9 p.m. and 1.45, police are still like asking students to come forward, give them any video or if they had any spottings of the couple, because that, that's still a hole, um, a hole in the timeline right now. And are they, are they concerned? Um, I, I've seen uh, people are worried that students aren't speaking up because they don't want to admit to underage drinking or drug use or something. So they've... I, They've said, please, you know, if you have information, please, you're not going to be in trouble with the school. Please just tell us anything you might know. That's happened, right? Yeah, yeah. Police have, have emphasized um, that, like, they won't be investigating any of the other, you know, sort of surrounding incidents happening that night. Like, if kids were getting drunk or smoking pot or doing drugs or whatever, they basically said at this point we're only interested in where Zana and Ethan were and like what was happening that night. So don't be scared um, to come forward. So they're, they're just trying to encourage people, you know, to, to give tips. Also, like this is a, a heavily, um, like, like everybody's in a fraternity and sorority for the most part here. Like there's a lot of frat and sorority houses. Um, so I think they're also trying to battle up against that because, you know, a lot of these, these, um, these fraternities, you know, they've, they've decided like, you know, we're not going to speak out or we're not going to talk to the media. They say they're cooperating with police, but, um, but, but police are just trying to get more information at this point. Brian, you mentioned that there was a keypad lock on the door and that also that they threw a lot of parties at the house. Are there any concerns about who might have had that code? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've heard from, from some uh, friends that they didn't give the code out to everyone. But, yeah, that, that's a really, a really good question. And, and, and the big question of, you know, is, is the killer someone that they knew? Is it someone in their in their group or circle of trust, um, someone who had been to parties at the house before and maybe knew the house. 
um, or is uh, or is this again someone that they didn't know at all who just followed them home almost like a stalking incident? Police haven't haven't told us if, if they if they know, um, and and all of those details have been really thin right now. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your continuing coverage of this, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Congress will use the National Defense Authorization Act to repeal the U.S. military's COVID-19 vaccine mandate after House Democrats conceded the issue to the incoming GOP majority. The bill, which lays out some $847 billion in 2023 budgetary spending for the Defense Department, is expected to pass this week. Earlier this week, current House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy threatened to hold back the NDAA until Democrats got on board with repealing the military's vaccine mandate. Former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard had this to say on Fox News yesterday. Uh, I know people personally, Brian, who have been uh, kicked out of the military, some who've served 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, all because of this mandate that makes no sense and frankly is based on a lie that Fauci and others continue to propagate as they have throughout this whole thing, which is these vaccines will prevent you from catching COVID and that it will prevent you from spreading COVID. Uh, The fact that this is even a question at this point, whether or not to lift this DOD mandate and that Secretary Austin is opposing it is just absolute madness. Yeah, it's I think it's smart for the Democrats to just cave on this. I don't understand. I like Tulsi what the logic of keeping this in place would be at this point. Um, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but the decision to get vaccinated should be an individual's choice. That's something you should consult with your doctor and whatever relevant guidance and make that choice for yourself. You know, people who are at high risk, who are elderly, generally not the people we have in our armed forces probably should get it. But again, that's their choice to have a rationale that you should that you would need to get it. There has to be, there should be some argument that, well, we, we, you have to get vaccinated because that's going to have these ancillary effects on people around you, people you work with, people you live with. If it's going to stop them from getting COVID, then you can see the argument for it. But we all have had to concede. Unfortunately, yeah. that's just not really the case yeah. with the vaccine. So it is an individual health decision. And, and while I think the U.S. military, our service people, are a little bit different than other employees in that they're, I mean, they have, frankly, they have to follow orders. They are, they they don't, they're not entitled, uh, for better or for worse, to the same freedoms as U.S. normal U.S. citizens or, or, or other employees. So I can understand in some kind of conceptual way why obligating them to do this could have a better legal defense behind it or maybe even philosophical justification. But all that said, it doesn't seem like there's any reason to do it. There's not enough of a reason to force people who yeah. don't want to get it or have some objection but want to serve their country. No, you can serve our country. You don't have to get it. That seems fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it is an interesting difference of opinion between how certain other military obligations are perceived. And, you know, there are a whole course of vaccines and shots that people are required that I agree should be narrowly tailored to what they actually need to stay safe and to support the interests of the organization. I don't, it's probably not true that everybody who's ever required to get a yellow fever vaccine is actually being sent to places where they could potentially get Mm -hmm. yellow fever and, or whatever else is on the schedule for people who are in the armed forces. So I do think there's something particularly politicized here about the resistance to the COVID vaccine. That being said, my feeling is that 
you know, for civil libertarian reasons, everything that everyone's required to do should be as nearly tailored as possible. Right. And now that we know, and many people have been ringing the alarm bell much longer before it was mainstream knowledge, and they should get credit for that, but now that it is mainstream knowledge that the vaccine doesn't have the same effect on preventing transmission as it once did, there's no real reason to keep standing behind these um, requirements. And it's actually surprising to me that they're still in place. Yeah. No, really surprising. And like you said, you have to give credit to people who earlier than the mainstream, earlier than me, uh, said, you know what, this is not going to in the long run keep cases down. Uh, I mean, maybe that that wasn't at the beginning, the vaccine helped against the initial strain for a while. And then when the other variants came along, it really, I mean, it it probably still has some effect on cases, but not at all the kind of, remember we were still talking about, oh, a breakthrough case. Oh, another breakthrough case. Oh, another breakthrough case. It was, okay, everyone, everyone virtually has had a breakthrough case. And it's it's worth emphasizing that being vaccinated lowers your potential to be uh, hospitalized and die significantly. And there are, you know, you could make an, an argument about the military's interest in not wasting funds or losing resources, mm-hmm. human resources and having people hospitalized for a long t- time and also having to pay for that care. However, you know, you have to weigh those those kind of against the civil libertarian right. concerns here. And, and most of those people are not going to be in a but I don't want to overstate that too much. There are plenty of people who are in the military who aren't like kind of active duty people. There are older people who are in the military that are in more senior positions who have, you know, heart well, and they, disease. And those, they and, probably should get vaccinated. And they probably should it, get vaccinated. But it's up that's to them. Gonna be, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's going to be up to them. Yeah. Well, so it was, it was good to see that. Uh, finally, it's, it's interesting that Democrats, I think, have really pivoted away for the most part. You can still find, honestly, the only place that I can tell that you can still find uh, like a lot of COVID mandates and vaccine mandates particularly are college campuses, mm. which is hysterical mm. and very weird and I, doesn't make a lot I mean, of what, sense to what me. What are but... people going to be mad at next, Robbie? Maybe maybe we can join forces and everyone can concentrate on being mad at the labor suppression that's been happening with the Biden administration with the support of all of these squad members and the like. And, and that once the, um, once the uh, cause to be super mad at vaccine mandates goes away with the last of the mandates. Oh, that will be... Uh... It will be a win for American workers as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) We'll see what happens. We'll have more rising after this. Well, it's official. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is Time Magazine's Person of the Year. They tweeted the announcement this morning. Earlier this week, the magazine released its shortlist of finalists, which included Liz Cheney, Ron DeSantis, and Elon Musk. Other finalists were Xi Jinping, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, novelist and former Bezos' wife uh, Mackenzie Scott, the Supreme Court, gun safety advocates, and Iranian protesters. And we should note it's not just Zelensky, but it's Zelensky and the spirit of Ukraine. And I should note that uh, so Adolf Hitler was person of the year in, in the World War II era because they don't, uh, it's not necessarily the, the most admirable or, or, or best person or more upstanding person. It's the person they think was most important to or consequential for the year. And I, given that criteria, I think you absolutely can make a case that Zelensky is that person. Now, it also fits that he's, he's being glorified there and it's not yeah the picture the picture picture is really worshipful also the spirit of ukraine and look war is horrible people having to be exposed to those conditions you know deserve all of the sympathy in the world 
But it is very difficult to embrace this in that sort of a spirit when it seems to be part and parcel of a larger propagandistic ex uh, effort that is geared toward preventing Americans from engaging meaningfully in a conversation about how this war is ever going to end. And when you've had a year where the Zelenskys have been featured in uh, elite fashion magazine profiles and on faux military sets with the wind Hollywood has their given them hair, uh, their awards, has handed him Oscars and right. It, it does. It does start to feel like a level of artifice that I'm not sure is exa exactly even helping his cause in terms of you know generating public sympathy at this point. Um, and the statements that Zelensky himself has made whenever questioned about the path to peace are so adamant that anything along those lines is akin to hating the Ukrainian people, throwing them under the bus, you know, a very how dare you give me more <laughs> infinite amounts of money attitude. But again, you know, you can feel the tide shifting in a way that profiles like this, I don't think, are, 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 are going are gonna to stop the way they might have been in the, in the past. So, it, you know, it's hard. It's hard because you want to be able to say true good things about people that you have empathy with without having to feel like you got to address the propagandistic nature that's mm -hmm. undergirding it all. So I had forgotten this, but Elon Musk was actually person of the year last year. Mm -hmm. I did not recall that. Mm -hmm. And then in 2020, it was Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And it, was it Trump in 2019? It might have been. Let's look that up. Uh, no, it was Greta Thunberg. <laughs> It's, okay. It's yeah, interesting. I mean, this is a pretty uh, r random prize. Obvi I have to bring up every time this is addressed the infamous stunt, still the most like ridiculous, hilarious. The two, I think it was 2006 or 2007, 2006, when we were all person of the year. Brianna, you were person of the oh, year. Oh, with a mirror And I was person of the cover. year. And you, the viewer, were person of the year <laughs> because it was you with a little reflecty, stupid little mirror. Well, look, who would you pick, given that this, this isn't really about... Being a good person, but just an influential and impactful person. Who would I pick as? I mean, like, I don't have a problem with Zelen. I've, I've, the framing seems uh, very yeah. deferential, and but I think you could make the case that he was person of the year in terms of consequence. I mean, you could also probably say that equally and more so for Vladimir Putin. Yeah, that they should put him on the cover together. A, <laughs> Sorry. It's the only time you'll get him in a room together. The <laughs> <laughs> U.S. Apparently. will have the uh, magazine shut down. <laughs> I mean, I, I would have liked to maybe see these railroad workers. Um, that, you know, given yeah. what just happened with the strike breaking last week, where there was so much, it was so heartening to see all the bipartisan support for them and the bipartisan frustration with the Biden administration's choice, along with the support of most people in Congress on both sides of the aisle to crush that strike, to use this weird 1920s law to weigh in and crush a, a labor movement in a way that very few other industries have that kind of exposure, have that ability for, the, for Congress to step in and take away their leverage. And people really saw what was happening there in a way that is often made opaque by media coverage and stressing what's going to happen to Christmas and the economy. Like, people were hopping mad. And it would have been lovely to see that energy carried across into a mainstream publication like that. But that well, seems beyond hope. There's real—this whole exercise is fraught because there's no real way to convey— like, who is, who is the most consequential person this year? I mean, the consequential things that happen are the result, usually, of a confluence of factors in a, a lot of people. And you're right, sometimes they nod to that. Like, I think there was the rescue workers were the, or the, or the, the is some combination of people. I mean, they've done so many stunts first with this thing. The first responders, a, the, they love to do kind of stunt yeah. awards. Dr. Fauci, he retired this year. He could have been an interesting he, choice. Wasn't, didn't he get it in the year of the pandemic? 
person oh, of the I mean, year. That, no, no, he did. I just no, I, I just went yeah, through yeah, him, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, I don't think he, so. I think he. I think you could have made it make a case that he was the. But, but of course, that's very U.S. focused. Then that's is it the supposed other to issue. be more global? What is? Yeah, it's whole person of the year. It's not. It is supposed to be global. It's not just U.S. So actually, they should throw it to. I mean, right, that would invite the question of whether should Xi Jinping be most influential person of the year, possibly. So it's, a, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a dumb thing, but... Yeah, I mean, look, I wouldn't want to have to make those kind of choices. I would accept it again. <laughs> Put another mirror on the front cover and Robbie will be a happy <laughs> the, camper. The journalist. The, uh, the, so the, this could have been more that annoying. Been good. The misinformation reporter. The, uh, the, uh, the social media moderator. All the right. fact checkers. All right. The, Okay, well, I, I do think there's an, a very that fascinating case for it to be a focus on journalism with, um, you know, uh, there was some news that, you know, it, it, the crown prince responsible for Khashoggi's murder just uh, got um, uh, the, 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 the clean bill of health uh, from the U.S. court system and won't be prosecuted there. Uh, there's obviously conversations about the, the media finally covering Julian Assange in a way that is more purposeful and accurate than has been done in Were the in whistleblowers years. a person of the year sometime? I mean, we're talking about the Twitter files release. Glenn Greenwald has been trending all week. There are a lot of reasons to put the spotlight on whistleblowers yeah. and, and vanguard journalism, independent journalism. The whistleblowers were Times 2002 person of the year. Okay, that was a I while ago, 20 that. years. Maybe time to bring the yeah. whistleblower back. And then there, there was the, the Me Too people were uh, person of the year. Once. That's interesting because there was just a, a retrospective in New York Magazine. Me a week Too or so movement ago, is, ta- is revisiting of- that and revisiting some of the mistakes that were made in that. Yes, so. I think a lot of them were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Silence Breakers were person of the year in uh, 2017, and they have. Um, well, they have all these people on the cover. That feels right. Well, let us know in the comments who you think should be person of the year. Yeah, we'll take your nomination. <laughs> and we'll have more Rising for you after this. One Philadelphia gas station manager has hired armed security guards to protect his business. Neil Patel, the manager of Cargo Gas Station in North Philadelphia, Patel says he hired bodyguards armed with AR-15s and shotguns after an increase in crimes over the past several years. We are tired from this all nonsense, robbery, drug trafficking, racketings, all kind of hanging around all gangs. According to Patel, the final straw was when his gas station was vandalized and the ATM machine was stolen. He told reporters that since the guards started three weeks ago, there had been no crimes at his business, which is the promise of legal gun ownership. This is why some people would like to own guns so that they can defend their homes and their businesses and deter crime. If, if this seems like a system that's working out for for you, Robbie, it seems like uh, that's that's a good system. He has a legal right to do it, and he's done it, and he says it's it's worked. I think the question is, do we want a world in which individuals, kind of vigilante style, hire out armed armed people to protect their property, or should we be having a more robust conversation about one? Why does the police seem to be so ineffective at their jobs, despite being hugely funded, sometimes to the tune of 50 percent of city budgets? And two, why it is that there is so much crime in the first place? We're talking about petty vandalization and stealing of ATMs, things that are, I'm sorry, correlated significantly with poverty. And those are not the kinds of crimes that people of means are going around doing. So what's going on in society? And can we start to address those sorts of root causes as well? Or are we comfortable with a world where there are independently hired, independently vetted, not systemically trained people with 
um, high-capacity weapons staining on corners uh, all across our cities. But well, someone has to provide defense services to the public. So if it's not going to be the police or the police are doing a bad job, I mean, people, this is why people are taking matters into their own hands, right? Because the police are not doing a good job. Mm -hmm. or, we have, or we don't have policies in place to correctly oppose this. I mean, I don't want to throw more money at the police either. Um, I don't want to reward, like, bad policing with more funding, necessarily. Nor do I. Uh, but someone, ha like, the, the, the mission of keeping, of, of deterring and preventing and reducing violence in society and violence and crime is it, like, it's not, um, you're not society at all unless you're doing those things, so. Right, well, there are people who think you can reduce violence um, and crime by addressing the root causes of violence and crime. And there's some people who tend to be focused exclusively on the idea of intimidating people out of committing crime where they don't want the crime to be committed. But I think there's an acknowledgement that, you know, water flows somewhere. And unless you get to the root causes, what you're basically doing is maybe defending your, your perch, which matters to you. And if that's your business and that's your home, then that obviously matters to you for sincere and legitimate reasons, but it doesn't actually get at the cause of the problem. And it also puts everybody else in a situation is, I don't know, do you want to be shopping at the gas station with armed guards or would you prefer to be shopping at a gas station that was safe without that kind of visible militarized presence? Well, I mean, I think if you're in Philadelphia, you might want to rather be there with the armed guards because it, the crime in Philadelphia specifically is very bad. I've said it on the show a number of times. Right. I concede some of the rhetoric about crime in the country is, is overheated or doesn't correspond to what you're seeing in cities. Philadelphia, the violent crime rate is just as bad as it was in the heyday of the 1980s before the, the vast reduction in crime that took place across this country. Something has gone horribly wrong there. You, has, has poverty in Philadelphia specifically increased dramatically in the last 10 years in a way it hasn't in other cities, and that explains the crime. I don't know that. That would kind of surprise me, but maybe I it's mean, the case. We could Google it and figure it out, but also, I mean, I'm not making an affirmative argument here. If you if you want to support the guy, if you want everyone to get AK-15, AK AR-15s, rather, and stand outside of buildings with guns, hey, it's your right. Go forth. I suspect that many people are uncomfortable with that, but I'm, I'm not making an argument. Good, good for that guy. <laughs> That's his choice. If that's the world where people want to live in, that's the world we're headed to. And if you want to go down that road, people can go down that road. If you want to have a conversation about what it would take for that man not to have to hire an armed guard, I would love to have that conversation. But it's clear that there is a real accountability issue with the police. There is a funding problem with the police. And we're obviously not using our resources as a society in a way that is, is getting the, the end results that we want. And I have more faith in our ability to come to better solutions in the zero-sum games we've been pursuing to this point. I think a lot of folks are at a tipping point where we've seen all of these instances of police malfeasance over the past year with Uvalde, et cetera, that we mm -hmm. want to have different kinds of outcomes and explore different different ways of getting at crime that we haven't necessarily explored before because of this like narrow-minded um, carceral focus. And I look forward to seeing those results. I have a lot of faith in us as a community of people to get those results if we actually are targeting the root problems of things instead of just well, one way and throw the way. Most the gun owners are not like more irresponsible with guns than the police themselves. They're in fact, many of them are probably better, more responsible because they have, there's less leeway. I'm not talking about gun we've owners. Seen, we've I'm not seen, saying uh, anything about anybody. Yeah. The, the question is, do you want armed guys with uh, hired, 
hired hands, uh, mercenaries with um, a, a machine guns standing outside, automatic weapons standing outside of um, establishments? Does that seem like a, a reasonable way to run a city? And if it seems like that way to you, good news, that's what is happening right now, and that's what you're allowed to do. If that puts a little bit of a chill down your spine because you're concerned about oversight, you're concerned about whether or not they're going to fall into some of the same traps that police fall into with even less accountability and training that police have, if you're concerned about whether or not they might escalate situations and cause death to be a result where the previous result might have been theft of property, which is obviously bad but not as significant if you're the store owner, well, then we got to have a robust conversation about about what this means and whether this is going to become something more akin to the norm. That's all. Well, I don't think uh, in the ideal world, maybe you wouldn't need anyone to have armed guards patrolling their businesses, but that, but you also wouldn't have immigrant business owners terrorized by people stealing their ATMs and their stuff and maybe inviting violence well, on their isn't person. That, isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal to try to figure out policy solutions to get us closer to Absolutely. an ideal world? Let's figure them out. All right. Well, <laughs> until then... Armed vigilantes. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, Yahoo News reporter Kevin Cirilli will be here in studio to discuss updates on the Sam Bankman Freed FTX saga, which we haven't talked about yet this week, mm. but is exciting. Yeah, for sure. Be like, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen, while on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also check us out on Roku and other streaming services. And we will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.